This conference will now be recorded. I'm Angela Roberts. Simon Jones. Stuart Evans. My name's John Wilson. I'm an independent HR and recruitment consultant. My name's Donna Obstfeld. I'm the Managing Director of DOHR. Head of Learning and Development at QMB in CASA. What I love about working in HR is that people aren't robots, they're not machines. I never know what's going to happen next. That opportunity to, to make a difference. It's still for me fundamentally about people and, and specifically about how people behave when you put them into an organised situation. Both to the organisation's performance and to the people in the workplace. To be in a position where I learn more about that on a daily basis feels like a real privilege. And I think that's the thing that I, I most enjoy. Hello and welcome to our 100th podcast. This series has always had a clear mission to give you insights you can use, shine a spotlight on evolutions in the profession and bring you thought-provoking comment from people putting all of that into action every day. Recording the series has taken us all over the country, microphones in hand. We've gone behind the scenes in hundreds of organisations from start-ups to government departments and heard about what's working best and what the movers and shakers are thinking and doing. In this special episode, we wanted to hear from you too, so we invited you to call in and record your own words of wisdom on your role, your profession and how to build a stellar career in HR. We also asked you for some hard-nosed questions for this month's trio of expert guests. And Pickering is a doer, HR director at O2 and a trailblazer for business-focused HR. Max Bloomberg and Stefan Stern are thinkers and writers. Max is a research fellow at Goldsmiths, University of London, and Stefan, a visiting professor at Cass Business School. So here's the podcast, as you've never heard it before, the 100th episode. A good moment for all of us to stand back, take stock, and think about what HR is for. In my head, I see it as ensuring that I have people in the organisation who have the skill, the will and the opportunity to really drive business success. So there's a real commercial edge to that. I think the purpose of HR is to enable the value delivered by people in organisations. They're enablers, but not the owners. HR does need to prove its worth, I think, because it's fighting against prejudices. I think the purpose is being, yes, a partner for line managers... And above all, allowing things to happen, getting things to happen, encouraging things to happen, and not just stopping things from happening. I think HR people lack confidence. People say, you know, if I do something wrong, HR will pick me up on it, that they're more interested in doing things right than in doing the right things. Too many times I hear... How do we ensure that HR is always on the board? How do we ensure that HR gets, you know, has a high profile? You, know, you don't find a sales director having those conversations with their CEO. So there is something about how we need to get over ourselves and, and understand what a great HR professional can add to any business. And I always say to my team, you are business people first and HR people second. <laughs> I 
think when I, I started in HR, it was very much about understanding the organisation. But I think it's more recently, I guess, that I've, I've started to realise that it's not just about knowing and understanding your own organisation. It's about knowing and understanding the external environment as well. And I don't mean just you know understanding new developments in employment law. I, I really mean un- understanding, as I said, the social and economic factors, the labour market, etc. When I came into HR, I think there was a view that, that you had to choose which camp you were in, and you could either be one of the sort of softly, softly old school employee-focused HR practitioners. Or you could be one of these modern HR practitioners with a sharp suit who would come in and make a point of taking people through a formal process very quickly, firing people. And I remember HR practitioners almost boasting about how many people they'd managed to get fired. I think what I've learned over time, there is absolutely a middle way through all of that where you can legitimately be business focused. But at the same time, you can challenge the organization where people are losing sight of the human impact. I think it's a really exciting time for human resources in general. HR is really the glue that will hold uh, global organizations together, which is very exciting. I think the technology that's in the marketplace right now will give organizations the ability to, for HR specifically, to be able to see the future of their workforce. And I think what we'll start to see over the next five to ten years are the CHROs or the HRDs becoming the managing director or CEO job. We know that the landscape where the profession sits has changed radically in the past 20 years and the profession itself is evolving to match, so it's probably worth revisiting Dave Ulrich's original model of what, back then in the 90s, he thought was the function of HR. I was at a function with Dave Ulrich last week and he never used this expression but if he'd known it he probably would have. As Jung, Carl Jung, once said that he's really pleased that he's Jung and not a Jungian. And Dave Ulrich said much the same thing. He said, you know, since he created the three-legged stool, um, his whole brand and personality have been tied to that. And he's not advocating that model anymore. So it's a bit of an albatross around his neck. Yes. You know, and he wishes people would stop saying that that the the Ulrich model, you know, Jung and not a Jungian, because he's not, you know, he's not an Ulrichian, he's Ulrich. So, Stefan, if we need a new model, what should it look like? It's probably something a little bit more adaptable and, and in the trendy word agile compared to uh, a fixed model. But all models go wrong, as the economists have proven to us over the past few years. And no model will work forever. The business cycle changes, people change, markets change, and so HR should change. And your vision or model of HR will have to change too. My view of the way the structure seems to work effectively is that I do think that line managers are responsible for delivering targets and HR are enablers. I think that HR are people experts that we know about, hopefully, what drives people, how to structure jobs, how to make organizations flow better and how to get results out of it. And I think that HR needs to be placed into the business function so that the line manager or the owner of the P&L has HR reporting into them so that they are enabling that part of the business. So that would mean your HR person will become an expert in that line of business, which is how we started by saying lacking the confidence. You need to be working in the business, not working in a separate function.
So if HRs are working towards a better model, well, you'll need advice for the journey. We asked you to share the best tip anyone ever gave you, and you came up with quite a few. The best piece of advice I've ever been given. Keep your integrity. Oh, gosh, right. I think knowledge is really important. OK. Uh, I don't... First and foremost, find a leader to follow rather than a job. Have your moral compass, and if you don't speak up when you're feeling that your integrity is perhaps somehow compromised or you're not comfortable with a decision, it will harm you in terms of how engaged you feel. The best piece of advice is probably about understanding the business. You'll learn more if you are following someone who you truly respect and not being stuck in HR. So getting out and about, building relationships, meeting people. My name's Tansy Pauls Carter. I work as uh, an HR consultant and I run my own business, which is Circum HR. And I've been working in the HR industry for 20 years. One of the first things somebody said to me when I first started work is to said, go out there and ask if you can help people with their jobs. I think it's important to be critical and I think it's important to learn be it in HR or any other kind of career how to challenge appropriately and it's a skill some people have and others don't it can be acquired it's easy to challenge inappropriately and it's easy to not challenge at all but but learning um, how to challenge appropriately in a constructive way I think is, is an absolute core skill and what about Anne Pickering from O2 what's the best piece of advice she ever got I always remember being appointed to the role in 02 in 2004 and the person who was interviewing me, I said to him, I said, I, you know, Andrew, I have real life work-life balance in my role at the moment. Will I have that if I move to 02? Because it is really important to me because I have two children. And he was very wise and he said to me, you know, Anne, the only person who can manage their work-life balance is you. And that's what you need to remember. He said, we will give you all the tools you need to do your job because you work for a technology company. But at the end of the day, you've got to be strong enough to manage your own work-life balance. And he was right. And to this day, you know, that is something that's really important to me. And if you ask any member of my team, they would say that's something they, they, they really do appreciate and have in O2. Before she became HR Director at O2, Anne was responsible for HR across four UK call centres and 300 stores. That all added up to about 8,500 people. Since then, she's launched a raft of successful initiatives like the Customer Service Academy. That's a one-stop shop for learning and development for everyone in customer service. And she's come a long way. But where did it all start for her? I grew up in Liverpool, uh, part of a big Irish Catholic family, and when I went off to university during my uh, vacations, I worked in Marks and Sparks as a student and got to the end of my final year, having done an English degree, thinking, what am I going to do with my life, Philippa? Uh -huh. And I decided that I really enjoyed variety. I had you know, a natural curiosity towards people, and I thought if I was stuck behind a desk five days a week, I'd really struggle. Applied for their graduate training scheme and was lucky to be accepted. Everyone's got a moment. That moment you just thought, yes, and did a private victory dance when no one was looking. The finest moment of your career to date. Here's Anne's. 
I mean, the pinnacle would have to be when I got appointed to the board in 02 by my chief executive. So he'd been appointed as a CEO and wanted to appoint a new team. So, you know, when he called me, you know, into his office, you know, in 2008, that was a massive moment for me because I just loved the company. So to be part of the team that ran the company was just, you know, amazing. I was so proud. And we asked for your career highlights too. When I worked at um, Heriot Watt University in, in Edinburgh, I think one of the, the highlights there was we were the, the first university um, in Scotland to get the Scottish Health at Work Award. And it, it was a highlight because it was achieved through collaboration across the university. So it was about occupational health, it was about welfare policies, but it was also about healthy eating and, and well-being within the workplace. So that was, that was quite an achievement to, to have got that award. Many, many years ago, I realised one of my weaknesses was actually employee relations and legal knowledge. So I went out of my way to actually go and do something about that, read up on the employment law. I actually went and trawled through some of the um, employment law cases, some of the actual pieces of legislation, which took a long time to go through. But it was actually worth doing because I then, as a result of doing that and working out that was my weakness, I made it my strength and it was something that I was known for. Of course, a career highlight isn't always about getting a promotion or an award. It can be about getting through a tough situation and out the other side. That's how it was for podcast listener David Jackson. I was the HR person in charge at, at Stepping Hill Hospital during the saline poisonings. I remember the nurse who was contaminating the saline ampules with oh, insulin. Yes. They're um, in court at the moment up on, on murder charges. What was interesting about that, situation is it, it was a real test I think of the things that people associate as being perhaps more old-fashioned HR skills so we talk a lot about strategic HRM and and the modern approach to HR but what we had was a workforce that was under suspicion patients were being deliberately targeted and we had nurses having to work alongside each other in what was already a very demanding job Um, with that shadow hanging over them and the fear of what might happen around them. And the managers were very influential, the senior management in the organisation influential, but people did turn to HR. And in a sense, it was a throwback to some of those uh, sort of welfare officer traditions in that HR did have to be there in a very supportive role, helping people to understand the formal processes that were taking place, reassuring people as, as best we could, but still with that, that, that modern professional edge. It's always worth remembering that everyone has their weaknesses. We can't all be brilliant at everything, not even Anne Pickering. I have never done a stint of any sort in the reward side of life. And so if I'm honest, that's a skill set I, I lack. So I always make sure that I've got really skilled reward people in, in my team. Pensions, fine. I sit on the pensions committee. I, you know, I enjoy, actually, I enjoy the pension side of it, but reward is definitely a gap in my skill set. And the reward team would absolutely reinforce that message, may I add. <laughs> That's very honest of you to say so. What's more, we all screw up sometimes. There was a very dark moment quite early on in my career in 02 where, and I won't go into the details, but we had a very complicated pay arrangement. Um, it was an inherited pay arrangement from our days at BT for, for our, our general population. And it was all to do with bank holiday and overtime, and I calculated it incorrectly. Now, I did get a colleague to check it, but we both calculated it incorrectly, and it did cost O2 a lot of money. But do you know what? They were fabulous. They said, that's OK, we'll pay it. 
you know, they were, they, we've, we've made a commitment and that's fine. But it was quite an interesting conversation I had with my <laughs> boss. I held my hands up straight away and said, I have absolutely made a mistake here. I think if I tried to cover it up, I think it might have been a different conversation. <laughs> Honesty is always the best policy. That must have been in these terrible. It wasn't great. <laughs> not, my, not my finest hour, I have to say. My learning from that is anything really big and important and scary, get it checked above, get it checked by one of your peers. And if you're really smart, get it checked by someone you know, who's junior to you. So wouldn't want to go through it again, but I did learn from that. To help us all learn from those darker moments, we asked you to put your questions to Anne, Max and Stefan. First. How can we move HR away from being seen as, as transactional when there are so many transactional things that need to be done? I could have 100 people doing transactional tasks if I wanted to do, but that's not the best use of their skills. So anything that, that we can digitalise and make more simple and more efficient, I'm going to go after that and make that happen. But I've also got people in the organisation who spend seven hours a day talking to customers, sitting in front of a screen. Now, some people would say, gosh, I wouldn't like that job. And other people say, this is the job of my dream. So there is also something about horses for courses here. And I think that's really important that, you know, that we acknowledge that. I've got people who are data analysts. That would be my job from hell, you know, for Anne Pickering. But you know what? They love it. So there are roles out there that suit people and they don't suit everybody. But I firmly believe if, if the transactional stuff can be done in a digital way, that's got to be the way forward. There was a thing recently in the Harvard Business Review with Rosbeth Moskanta who said that the single most effective thing men can do to help women in the boardroom is the laundry. I'm interested in how broad we go in terms of helping women to move into more senior positions. The Equal Pay Act was 1974 from memory. Equal Opportunities legislation dates to that time. That's over 40 years ago. But those graphs of gaps in pay between men and women for people doing the same jobs has closed a tiny bit and they are those two lines are getting closer together gradually but it's going to take another 50 years at the current rate of progress for them to meet so something's not happening fast enough a lot of people don't like legislation or quotas because it feels heavy-handed however we might quite like what quotas would do i'm not a fan of quotas i don't know any woman who wants to be appointed because of their gender however what women want is a level playing field, which I think is eminently reasonable. So if I'm working with headhunters or search firms, I insist on a 50-50 gender balance shortlist, but I won't necessarily insist that I appoint a woman. I will then appoint the best person. That's really important. So, you know, this is about business leaders, you know, grasping that having a diverse workforce and a diverse leadership team makes good business sense. I think we need more research to demonstrate the impact of women on boards and to show that it does bring positivity in. Unfortunately, while you've got a lot of male-dominated boards, getting funding for that kind of research is going to be tricky. So we need HR, we need universities. But I don't think it's just a gender issue. I think it's, you know, in all areas of diversity, race, religion, culture, sexuality, that we need to see what are the organisational benefits that each of those diversities brings to the organisation. We're talking a lot about creating jobs with more purpose, but the danger with that is, are we in danger of it becoming a, a nice, developed Western world, world of work, because we've exported all our difficult and horrible jobs to other parts of the world where we're almost blind to what's going on? I thought it was a really 
interesting question and I you know I don't see my role as and, and forgive me if this sounds flippant I don't see my role as about creating interesting fabulous jobs for people frankly I'm here to ensure that O2 makes a lot of money you know we're here to drive business success now within that I want to ensure I've got a motivated workforce so it is in my interest to ensure that you know people have you know interesting roles because if they've got interesting roles they're much more likely to stay However, we're also, you know, in a world that is becoming, you know, quickly digitalized. Digitalization is a great thing because I think it just allows people to focus on the stuff that's much more interesting. Well, of course, what we're seeing now in the States, and I think we'll see it here too, is the so-called reshoring of jobs because the gap between pay here and there is closing as developing countries develop and people have higher expectations abroad. So actually, yeah, we need to think a bit harder before we are... Uh, uh, offshoring more and more because maybe we need to be doing these things closer to home. This outsourcing, it's not going to stop. Of course not. But it's not a simple choice. What is the future of HR? Because 20 years ago, technology wasn't anywhere near as massive as it is now. You know, the things that we do now in HR is different to 20 years ago. You know, every, there's, there's so much computerisation. Is there still going to be the need for an HR person in an office or, or is that going to change? <laughs> oh, I think, yes, there's going to be HR for sure. I think um, line managers can't do everything on their own. We've seen the danger of excessive delayering and individual managers having too many people reporting to them. There's just too much. Good management, the old-fashioned term was supervisory management. It's about paying attention to people not in a sort of mollycoddling sense or a therapist sense, but just noticing. It sounds banal. It's incredibly important. Line managers can't notice everything. And HR is partly there just to say, have you noticed? So I think there is that additional role, but the nature of it is going to change. It's part coach, part counsellor, part activist, interventionist, provocateur. From the day that we went into the industrial era, we started losing some human transactions. People didn't, you know, have to do the knitting or operate the, the jenny or whatever we were doing in those days, the spinning jenny. So there's a level of repetitive work that it is possible to automate, possibly with levels of error and maybe not as good as a human being would have done it, although nobody's proved that that isn't the case yet. Um, I see the loss of human interaction as an opportunity to introduce more innovation and to create more interesting roles for people. So I don't see it as a loss. The advance of technology and increasing digitisation brings us to data and the buzz topic of big data. Everyone's talking about it, so what will it mean for business and for HR? Here's thoughts on that from Stefan and Anne. I'm sure data is terribly important, but you have to be able to do something with it. You've also got to understand what it's really telling you. Of course, they say you can torture data and it will confess to anything in the end. <laughs> um, and just a mountain of more data doesn't really help anybody. Is HR getting a bit too preoccupied with collecting data, an ever wider range of data, and not thinking hard enough about what they're actually using it for? I think any discipline can get overwhelmed by data because, you know, we, we live in a digital world. So that danger, you know, exists. I work in an organisation that has 24 million customers. We want to know as much as possible as we can about them in order to provide them with a great service. You've got, I think you've got to be, you know, selective and choose, you know, where you're going to make the difference. I think we need to focus on a few very central questions. I mean, you know, Enterprise Rent-A-Car who just asked their customers, are you coming back? And Tammy Erickson has, likes to ask chief executives when they're, when they're busy telling her how marvellous their company is, 
would you like your son or daughter to work here? I mean, I mean that's a much more revealing question than the sort of 20-question list survey that you tell employees to fill in. To start with data is absolutely the wrong place to start, and I think this is the mistake that most organisations are probably making. Where you start with an organisational problem and then say, what data do I need to solve this problem, and then you see what data you have on hand and what data I need to supplement, and then you generate it, always results in a successful project which fixes the problem outcome then people who say, I've got all of this lovely data, what can I do with it? That's like saying, I've got all these lovely car parts in the room. I wonder if they're enough to build a car. Chances are, no. Finally, some nuggets of wisdom from all of you for everyone trying to build a career in HR. In HR, the best question you can ask yourself is, you know, not how good a business partner you are or how much employment law you know. It's how good do you want to be? for the businesses you serve, for the people you work with, and I guess for the kind of mission and the purpose um, that that organisation or that company or that band of people stand for. I would say get yourself qualified. Um, I mean, you come across different opinions on this and then people who've obviously worked their way up within a business and haven't done the, their CIPD, they haven't done their qualifications at all. But I would suggest people get yourself qualified because it gives you a good broad grounding in a sort of variety of aspects of HR that you and management theory, all those sorts of things, you, you, can't, you can't replicate that by working your way up in a particular organisation or a particular sector. For those people looking to advance their careers, international experience uh, is, a, is a great thing to, to look for. It will be a massive advantage given the increasingly globalised world. Having done that myself definitely changed my approach in terms of how I'd roll out strategies when it involves multiple nationalities. I really, really believe that you need to go out there and manage your own career and take responsibility for yourself. A lot of people sit there and think it's their manager's responsibility to sit there, promote them, you know, give them the pay rise. But I personally believe you need to go out there and prove exactly why you're worth it. Unlike most functions of a business, if you look back 10, 15 years, HR is a very, very different function. And so my advice is innovate and don't be afraid to fail because it won't look the same in 10 or 15 years in the future. I think that the number one thing I'd, I'd want to pass on is to remember you need to continuously develop yourself. In order to progress and change, we need to focus on our continuous professional development. Next time, continuing professional development. How smart organisations are turning what can be a pointless box-ticking exercise into a golden recruitment and retention opportunity. The podcast goes live on the CIPD site and on iTunes on the first Tuesday of every month. Don't miss it.